All right, we're live there, drinky, drinky. <laughs> You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode four. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. And be sure to give us reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find show notes, examples, discussions, and more. And send your feedback and questions, comments, rants to comments at codingblocks.net. And with that, welcome to Coding Blocks. I'm Joe Zach. I'm Michael Outlaw. And I'm Alan Underwood. And this week we're going to be talking a little bit about application security, specifically the OWASP Top 10. So OWASP is an organization... Uh, they're a 5013C, C3, whatever, uh, nonprofit that are focused on improving the security of software worldwide. And um, their mission is to make uh, software secure through visibility so that individuals and organizations can make more informed decisions and, and just kind of know what's out there. And I think it actually stands for the Open Web Application Security Project. So that's OWASP, kind of like the bug. And what they've done with this top 10 is they've looked at hundreds of organizations, thousands of applications, and over 500,000 vulnerabilities to kind of catalog and gather up and look at what the the top 10 threats are based on uh, a variety of things like the prevalence, the exploitability, the impact, and, and how easy it is to detect these problems. And if you go to their website, um, they actually have a, a bunch of books and merchandise on sale, so you can read about them, support them, and uh, get a cool hat, too. And that's at owasp.org. Also, I wanted to mention that uh, a lot of this security um, development lifecycle stuff and, and threat modeling stuff that we'll be talking about is, was developed initially by Microsoft. They literally wrote the books on this stuff. And so um, a lot of the books, like, literally called Secure Development Lifecycle and Threat Modeling uh, are available on like Amazon.com. Particularly relevant to OWASP are the notions of stride and dread. And what exactly is stride? Are we talking about the acronym here? We, yeah, the... yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wikipedia says stride <laughs> is spoofing, tampering, repudiation, information disclosure, denial of service, and elevation of privilege. So pretty much what every hacker is trying to do. Yeah, there's the different types of attacks. And DREAD is a way of um, calculating a, a sort of numerical score for rating your uh, risk. And so what you do is it stands for damage, reproducibility, exploitability, affected users, and discoverability. So if you had some sort of uh, vulnerability, you might um, categorize it in saying uh, the damage is a 3 out of 10, reproducibility is a 9 out of 10, affected users 10 out of 10, and discoverability is a 1. You know, that gives you some sort of score back so you can kind of bang these things against each other and, and sort them, kind of figure out like a priority list for your your organization. And if you get the high score, your initials stay up there <laughs> all the way up until we lose power. <laughs> <laughs> and also I want to mention the, the notion of defense in depth. So we're going to be talking about this OWASP Top 10, and we'll be throwing out a couple of solutions for some of these items. But uh, I wanted to keep in mind that um, a lot of the stuff that you can do is really based on your environment. And it's not really enough to just have one fix. A lot of these things, there's a lot of a lot of different ways in there. To, and uh, there's a kind of a cute saying that's popular saying that the um, defender has to defend against everything and the attacker only has to, to get one successful attack in order to be successful. So uh, that's something to keep in mind. Right. So another way of saying defense and death would be saying not just uh... – Using strong passwords, but also using roles and permissions. Right, right. and like, HTTPS. Like multiple and... layers of security on top of one another. Right, don't to, rely to on the stronger. system. Don't rely on the system to do everything for you. You're also going to need to to check things yourself as well. Right. And also, uh, one last thing to mention before we kind of dive in, uh, two last things, uh, is uh, there's a tool called WebGoat that's provided by OWASP at OWASP.org. That is a purposefully broken ASP.NET web application. And it's got little exercises that you can do to try and actually kind of break in and um, see what they could have done differently to prevent that sort of attack. It's, it's really cool. Finally, I wanted to mention uh, Troy Hunt, at Troy Hunt uh, on Twitter. He's actually got a fantastic series looking at the OWASP Top 10 a couple years ago that actually goes into each one in-depth 
and does a, a great analysis and explanation of what's going on specifically tailored to .NET. And you can also watch, I think it's like eight hours of videos on yeah. Pluralsight. Yeah, and, and he's, he can be found at uh, troyhunt.com. And and even though it might be a little dated, it's still good information because the they still these items still stay in the top ten. They might shuffle around, but for the most part, they're you know, the, the same vulnerabilities have been hanging around. Yeah, exactly. I mean, from 2010 to 2013, really, there, there's been a few things that moved down the list a little bit, and they attribute a lot of that to the fact that it's showing up on the OWASP top ten for so long. So uh, yeah, this information is all still extremely relevant. So uh, with that, let's go ahead and get started. Let's let's talk about the number 10 uh, vulnerability that's out there right now. Yeah, so we're going to be going through these backwards. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just make that clear. Yeah, like, countdown. Yes. So, so counting down from 10. Yep. Unwanted redirects and forwards. Yeah, this one's kind of interesting, right? We, we've probably all seen this at some point and never really thought too much about it. But if you ever see... In a URL, you'll sometimes see a URL dot .aspx or dot .php or something, and, and, and there'll be a variable in the query string that'll be like, you know, redirect to or something like that, and then it'll have a page in there. And that kind of stuff can be hijacked and send you somewhere that you don't necessarily want to be. And so it's really kind of up to your application to make sure that whatever is up there is something that you think should actually happen. So you don't you don't want people being sent off to malicious sites. So one of the ways to get around this what is to basically have a whitelist, right? Right, and maybe only let uh, you be redirected to your own domain, the domain that you're on, or maybe a whitelist of domains. And I think a good example of this is like if you get an email that says you've got a Facebook message, you click on the link. And you're not logged in. So it, it bounces you to a login form where you log in. And then it's got sometimes up in the URL maybe or a, a form field that tells you where to go next. Basically what action you were trying to take before they interrupted you and made you log in. And if this is available to an attacker, then they can kind of trick you into going to this login page and then bouncing you to, you know, Facebook.cn, which looks like the page you wanted to go to, but is actually, you know, kind of a uh, like a keylogger or whatever. Yep. Hey, it's uh, it's it seems fairly obvious, but it's definitely something that probably a lot of a lot of places don't really concern themselves with because they just expect everything to be valid. And pretty much the whole concept behind OWASP in many of these method or many of these vulnerabilities is that if you don't control the inputs, then it has to be considered untrusted. So. These redirect URLs, uh, these variables, are things that you need to make sure are safe. Yeah, and so, like, you know, as we go through these, we're going to bring up some, like, famous, well-known hacks that happened that relate to these. And I believe the most recent one for this was the Adobe hack, right? Yep. <laughs> Raise your hand in your car, wherever you are, if you uh, <laughs> were one of the 38 million accounts that were affected. Yeah, yeah that, that I, would be the I, three I, of I, us. I know I was. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. We, we all well, got speaking emails. Speaking of that one, since that one is so uh, current, though, too, we should probably mention that uh, LastPass has a uh, you know LastPass dot com slash Adobe. You can actually check to see if uh, if your email was one of the ones included in that hack. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, mine showed up. Hey, <laughs> you were there, mm -hmm. and that's uh, that's much better than like say Googling for uh, the uh, Adobe emails. <laughs> Yes, the places you have to go to get this information are not the places that you should be going. Yeah, you'll right. probably be flagged. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, with that one, then um, we're going to step on to the number nine vulnerability, which is using components with known vulnerabilities. So, I mean, honestly, I don't think anybody's going to do this on purpose. Uh, but some of the examples that were given directly from OWASP were. The Apache CFX authentication bypass, basically if you didn't put in an identity token, you had access to every single web service available. Uh, that's pretty huge. It might be a feature. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I suppose. And then uh, another one that they mentioned was uh, Spring, uh, a very popular Java um, platform or uh we call it, not a platform, jeez, kidding. Framework. Framework, yes. there we go, yes. Stuff. Um, there was actually a vulnerability in that that would allow you to take over the server. So Spring is huge. 
I mean, tons of organizations use it. Tons of uh, of Java programmers out there do. So it's not it's not necessarily that you're going out of your way to pick anything, well, right? You know, I mean, OWASP doesn't specifically mention this one, uh, but wouldn't <clears throat> I, w- I would think that the most common one for this would be file formats. All there's been some recent. In fact, just this past Patch Tuesday, Microsoft released a big TIFF uh, patch fix. There have been numerous ones from Adobe for PDF files, which ironically, this OWASP <laughs> documentation Ooh, from OWASP a is a PDF. Yeah, delivered in PDF. There were some other ones too. Microsoft has had a bunch of. Well, there was font. Uh, ones that have yep. happened. Oh yeah. One, you know, they moved stuff down into the to the kernel layer, uh, and and that just brought up a whole slew of stuff. I mean, those are more operating system level, but I would, I don't know. I was, I was kind of surprised that they didn't list that as as one of the components with known vulnerabilities. Yeah, I guess in compo- when they're talking about components, I guess they're specifically talking about programming components. So, you know, you don't want to go grab a library that you know has security vulnerabilities in it. But, you know, chances are you're not trying to do that anyway. So I guess the key here is really make sure you keep everything up to date with patches and and that kind of stuff, right? I mean, if you go use a third-party library, keep it up to date. You guys aren't going to mention WordPress? (laughs) Oh, yeah. There's been a few of those. (laughs) Yeah, an old version of WordPress is a a sure way to get hacked. But even even the newer ones aren't exactly uh, known for being safe. And a lot of it's due to the plugins. But if someone could figure out what version of WordPress you're on, um, you know, that can can be an issue. Yep. Well, I mean, if they (laughs) – I mean, if we're going to talk about versions, then that pretty much applies to – Anything that everything yeah, right? unsupported operating systems, patch what language you're on, Windows what version of the server, keep it all OS or uh, you know, server software. Which unfortunately, right, one of the big problems with that though is when you start patching things and keeping things up to date, it inevitably breaks something else you coded, right? I mean, and that's one of the frustrating things, and I think that's why a lot of people don't keep all their stuff up to date. But I you mean, you can't you can't be lazy about yeah, it. Yeah, you have to bite the bullet and do it. And it's funny, too. I'm sure everyone's seen that screen where they, they get an error message on a website, like a bank website or something. It says, uh, MySQL error, version 5.01. <laughs> right. Oops. Yep. Right. So yeah. um, moving on to number eight, cross-site request forgery. And uh, this is always kind of a weird one to explain, but I, I think it's easiest to just kind of do it through an example. Um You'll see, um, you know, if you ever notice on Amazon.com, uh, they make you log in a lot, and it's really annoying. So uh, it seems to happen uh, uh, pretty much every time I try to go add something to my car or go visit orders or something. It's like they know I'm already logged in. They know my cart. They know some of my stuff. They know my wish list. But as soon as I try to do an action that, like, takes money or, or does something that could uh, hurt me, they make me re-authenticate if it's been a while. or I'm not really sure what the rules are around it. But they do this in order to prevent someone from kind of slipping me a link that might trick me into, say, adding an item to my cart or adding an item to my cart and checking out. Or for your bank, you could actually, uh, you know, potentially slip someone a link that transfers money to a counter or something like that. Yeah, it's uh, one of the most popular ones out there was a, <laughs> a takeover kind of of uh, – of google.br for for the uh, brazil version of google and and what it is is these companies basically faked information being sent to a site so a site expects a certain set of headers a certain payload a certain um url and and essentially what happens is another site knows all the information that 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 the that the one site is looking for and in order to do this, they generate their own request to that site, and they send malicious payloads along with it. Yeah, it was a man-in-the-middle attack. Yes, it's exactly, what, exactly it what it is. And it so, was happening at a, at the router level, consumer router level. Uh, it, it was changing your DNS entries to go through it and then acting as the man-in-the-middle to intercept the request that you wanted and behind the scenes it may make a real request it may also do some malicious stuff but well in that case what they were doing is they were redirecting people not to the real google.br but to a to one that looked very similar 
and then they were basically installing malware and that kind of stuff on it. So, so being that they took over the DNS, they literally, it looked like you were at google.br, but you were actually sitting on another server out there that was basically putting bad stuff on your computer. Yeah. I, I think, uh, you know, th- th- this one could pretty much be summed up with, um, you know, if, if you have to do anything secure, you want to do it through SSL then. That way you can trust the payload, uh, you know, end to end. Yep, and you can also um, do something like appending a, a URL token, um, like a, a unique token per user or per transaction, either in the form or the, in the URL, to kind of um, verify that that action was um, expected. Yeah, so something that was generated on your side beforehand that you expect to get back on the return. Another way that people do that as well is they make sure that you only accept, again, going back to the whitelist, is you only accept requests from a particular domain. So um, while the man in the middle thing is is kind of what they did, they only were able to achieve that because they basically strung together uh, a whole bunch of these things. So if if you don't allow external sites to post to your forms or whatever, you need to make sure that whatever post data comes in actually originated from your site. So those are several different ways that you can um, kind of uh, mitigate this problem. And that can be pretty tough to do. And I think that's where that unique field comes in. So it's something that, uh, you know, you gave the customer that they're giving back to you that you didn't then discard uh, afterwards. So it's kind of like a single use token or unique to that session. There's actually a a WASP actually has a pretty good uh, tool, CRS, CSRF tester that can help generate test cases to demonstrate the dangers of CSRF flaws. Very nice. All right. Well, let's move on to number seven, missing function level access control. Better known as authorization, right? Uh, Pretty much. So, like, what's an example of this? All right. So, uh, one example that was given, I believe, was if you had a, a like directory permissions, right? So, not allowing them to get into an admin path unless they were actually, you know, authenticated in. Right? They couldn't just change their path to be like whatever they wanted. Okay. Right. And I've seen it before, where like the um, um, like the index page or or something in a in a directory requires you to be logged in, but you don't necessarily have to be logged in to access another file in that same directory because it only checks on that, like the login form. And uh, that also, um, you know, any sort of application security that makes sure that you're logged in doesn't apply to other things in that folder like Excel files or or text files or, you know, uh, password files or whatever else. Yeah, I mean, we talked about WordPress earlier. And while it's not necessarily part of this particular vulnerability, the the idea is you can go in and you can look at the entire code base and you know what the admin pages themselves are. So if you actually knew the URL to get there and the authorization wasn't implemented properly, then you could just go straight to the page and do whatever. Um, so that's kind of what this whole thing is, is you know where the page is or you know how to access the thing. And if the authorization is not in place, then you could potentially do things that you shouldn't be allowed to do. So... Yep. Yeah. So uh, the one for that was the uh, the, fam- the famous one for that would be the Apple AT and T uh, iPad email hacks that happened back when uh, the first iPad was released. Um, you know, I mean, Apple kind of gets the bad name for it, but it was really, if I recall, on AT and T side where the hack was happening, where uh, you know the user could just change the query string and could start farming. Uh, you know, harvesting all the email addresses for uh, AT and T registered iPads. Um, That's yeah. unfortunate. And one thing is bad about this one in particular is that automated tools aren't very likely to find these things. It, it really um, it helps to have the kind of an insider's knowledge to this. You know, you need to know what those files are, what the technology file structure structure looks like underneath. Yeah. So I mean, so that that was an example of the two where. Like he had access to do his task, but he didn't have access to start grabbing other people's uh, email addresses too. So, um, you know, that's a different take on the access level, right? Like you might have access to your stuff, but not necessarily to, 
my account. Yep. All right. So number six, sensitive data exposure. So there's a, a lot of different ways this can happen. Um, like storing sensitive data in the clear, um, plain text. An example I always like to think of is, uh, too, if sometimes, uh, sensitive information is logged. Like have you ever seen a, um, like some sort of logging framework that logs all the inputs and outputs to various components and oops, you accidentally logged a CV2 number or something like that. Um, I think that would count as sensitive data exposure. So usually the restrictions um, applied to logs aren't as strict as say the credit card table. Uh, this also applies to like weak or bad crypto. Um, not sure. One thing I'm not sure about is if this counts for like um, exposing like the, ver you know, we talked about my SQL, like exposing version numbers of things. Um, I don't really think that counts as sensitive data here. What do you guys think? Well, I think that counts as server misconfiguration. Yeah. But I think like one, one that, uh, that was talked about was if you, uh, you know, flipping to SSL at the wrong time. So like on your login page, you went across as HTTP, right? And then, so then you enter in your username and password, click submit, and then you'd come back SSL. But by then it's too late. You already sent everything in the clear. Yep. Right. So, so that was already too, too late. Uh, or another example would be putting sensitive data into the URL. Absolutely. Right. right? as yeah. a parameter in the URL. Well, one of the uh, examples that they give in the OWASP documentation, and this one was kind of interesting, but uh, let's say that you have credit cards going into the database being encrypted, but they're being encrypted at the database. So as they're going in, they're being encrypted. Well, to get them back out, the database is actually what's doing the decrypting. So anybody who gains access to your database can now decrypt all the data coming back out. So um, that's a really interesting thing to keep in mind is also separating out those layers a little bit so that, you know, it, <laughs> the, the data can't be accessed right where it lies. Even though it's encrypted, it was a weak encryption. So One of the more general versions of this, though, too, would have to do with uh, passwords getting out, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, whether the, the – how to phrase this? The type of – encryption quotes mm -hmm. uh that 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 you know is used versus hashing uh or if it wasn't properly salted uh you know when, those those have been famous leaks that have happened as well right yep and uh, one thing to mention about this one too is uh you know we mentioned that these um, are kind of graded and these top 10 come from you know combining prevalence and exploitability and detectability um etc and uh, this is the only one in the top 10 that they list as being difficult to exploit. And because that, you know, it does require having access to those files or the database or whatever. However, I think this one's still in the top 10 because the impacts of having sensitive data exposed are quite severe. Yeah, this one's huge. I mean, if somebody gets access to all your, your customer credit cards or uh, social security numbers, if you're a healthcare provider or something like that, you could almost just shut your doors, right? I mean, <laughs> unless you're a huge company, uh, that might be a blow that you're not going to recover from. I'm trying to think of like what the most recent password hack that happened was. Um, I mean, there was the Adobe hack that happened, but there have been recently, so many. I thought there was another one. I mean, for a while, like LulzSec and Anonymous, I mean, they were just they were eating everybody up. Yeah. I mean, uh, LulzSec in particular, I think they did some damage to Sony. But, uh, there, but that wasn't this of, one. Yeah, that wasn't. No, no, this no. One. I, I know that. But but what I was go, where I was going with that though is that back to like the the you know passwords that were either uh, stored in the in the clear or they weren't properly uh, salted and hashed. Uh, you know, th there was something. There was one recently where it, where it happened, and uh, you know they started looking at like you know because one of the things that has been coming out about this that has been kind of interesting is seeing the common passwords that people are using, right? I think like on Twitter or security now, they, they've mentioned monkey as being like one of the most popular passwords that people have used over the years. But I mean, that, that's just being found out now because of these hacks that are happening because, uh, you know, the, the data was just stored to where it could be easily, uh, retrieved. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and particularly with the Adobe hack, I remember hearing that, um, a lot of people were looking at the security questions and answers. And so <laughs> they would see. Password. <laughs> yeah. 
they mean and then my the one hint might be starts with p the next one might be rhymes with ass word and uh you know if you put enough of these hints together you can figure out um you know what the the that security question answer was well this is and this is where the salting goes with the with the um you know exposing that sensitive data because if if yours if your password hint is rhymes with ass word and i see that you, your hash matches Alan's hash. Yeah, you and, got them and both. Maybe Alan has a really good hint yep. given to his. It doesn't matter because I know what his is. So I mean, if it's salted correctly, then I shouldn't. I sh- that, you can't put two and two together. See those. Yeah, right. together. Yeah, so that's a big one. Um, that's always going to be a very big one. Is trying to make sure you secure your data properly. Yeah, and this is another one that's hard for tools to, to find automatically. Yep. So moving on to number five, and this one's a pretty big one. This one's security misconfiguration. And, you know, this one's unfortunate because it's so easy to gloss over when you're installing software and doing everything else. I mean, it takes a lot of work to secure things properly, right? I mean, uh, uh, quite a bit of work. Security guys get paid big money. They really do. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a big one. I mean, if you don't lock down privileges on your software, your hardware, uh, it's very exploitable. Yeah, and a lot of times, um, secure uh, software is insecure by default. You know, like uh, the um, like routers and stuff that you might buy at Best Buy, or whatever. A lot for a long time there in, in the early days of like Wi-Fi, um, they would have uh, they would all use the default address one nine two. You know, um, admin, 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 admin. Yeah, and they, you know they all have even the same um, name. It'd be like Netgear Router. So you could uh, get a pretty good idea of what that password's going to be for well, most people. I mean, we we talked about it at the beginning where uh, Microsoft literally wrote the book on this stuff, right? And that's because they got hammered so much. I mean, like the first version of uh, XP, like it was wide open for everything. It wasn't until like one of the later security packs where it actually had, uh, you know, a firewall and, and ports turned off by default. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, in fairness, Microsoft got hammered because they were the big boys on the block. But that's also why they know about a lot of this stuff. That's also why when we all installed Windows 7 and Windows 8, you know, every time you went to install a piece of software, it prompts you with 5 million prompts. Are you sure you want to do this? Are you really sure you want to do this? Mm -hmm. Come on. Are you? I don't know that you really want to do this. So one example I like to give uh, is a couple years ago, I was working somewhere that um, happened to reuse the same password in a lot of different places. And um, somehow someone got into one server and then they were just able to use the same password they got in, used to get into that server and to get into pretty much everything else. Okay, but I mean, like, so in this security misconfiguration, though, there's there's a couple of good examples that, that come to mind, though, from a .NET perspective. So we kind of hinted on a moment ago with the verbose error pages, right? So every, every .NET developer, you, you've seen the... Uh, you know, the yellow screen messages, you know, server application error, and then some long exception message. But then at the bottom, it'll have like the version of IIS that you're running and .NET that you're running, right? Like that, that would be an example of one that you would not want to expose, uh, you know, to, to external clients, which is good that the, um, you know, you, you have the ability to, to, to turn that on, uh, off for, uh, for remote, but another example that came to mind too, as you were mentioning the passwords that were being reused, is uh, leaving the passwords not encrypted in your web config files. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, there are other things mentioned uh, when you when you set up a server. There's a ton of things turned on by default that you don't use. If you don't use them, they should be turned off. Yeah. Um, your application directory listing, like in Apache, a lot of times would be turned on you can see all the files in there turn that stuff off you don't want people to see that um it's it usually boils down to and again that's why i said this one's so so frustrating is you have to know kind of what you're looking for to turn off in most cases i mean you install your server and, and all the software to go with it if you're not aware of every little thing you need to turn off you really should find out from somebody or, or well, do some searching I'll, I'll give you the most basic one that i could think of right ping oh absolutely why i like like okay so at, from a default server perspective in my opinion why why do you want to let somebody know that you're there right, right? for for that kind of uh an address right for a ddos attack just, yeah, get, just let them know <laughs> just don't even reply 
Yeah. Right? I mean, maybe I'm taking it a bit too far, and, and it's certainly outside of the realm of .NET. But, yeah, so in the, in the, the concept of default little things being on that you don't really think about, right, unless you actually sit down and you're like, oh, yeah, I don't actually need ping turned on. Yeah. And one example I like is you don't see this so much anymore, but application servers uh, or applications sometimes that come with sample applications built in. Like if you uh, install IIS on, on like a Windows 7 box or something, it creates a default website for you. And so if that default website, uh, that which you may have forgotten about, has some sort of vulnerability, then you have a vulnerability too. Um, you know, that, that kind of thing doesn't happen too much anymore. But I do all my shopping at Northwind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, oh, and, and the one last thing is, and they hit on it pretty big here, is, again, going back to patches. Make sure all your software is up to date. If If you haven't patched your server in six months, well, you know, it's on you. So, um, you know, make sure you keep all your code libraries up to date. If you're working on old libraries, well, you know, you're at the mercy of, of whatever's going to happen there. So, you know, try and keep your stuff up to date. All right. So with that, we'll move on to number four, insecure direct object references. Insecure direct object references. Yeah. Yeah. It's so clear, right? For a thousand. Yeah. So, no, this one's actually kind of cool. Uh, this is, if I remember right, wasn't this Citibank? Uh, the, the got. Yeah, all, this was, this was the Citibank hack. Yeah. Uh, where they let go like 200,000 accounts or something. It, it was, it was, it's really interesting. So essentially what this one boils down to, I guess you guys, you kind of want to know what it is. Um, when you look up in a URL and you see user ID equal 25 is a number. Typically, when you see that, you usually know that in the database, that's probably a sequential auto increment field. And so the, what happened is these somebody had actually logged in to a Citibank account, had seen the user account information or the account number up at the top. And they were like, huh. Well, let me go ahead and change that account number and see if I can see what the next information is. And so they just kept adding, you know, adding one to it. And essentially they were able to gain access. So through lack of authorization controls, basically this person should have only been able to see their own account through lack of authorization and through a little bit of just, you know, peeping around, they were able to access over 200,000 accounts and grab that information. So essentially this insecure direct object references focuses on authorization, but then they say you can also take it a step further. And instead of showing uh, account number one, two, three, four, five in the URL behind the scenes, you might have a session table that, that maps one, two, three, four, five to a GUID or something that you then show in the URL. And then when something gets passed back, it'll look that information back up in the session that you have and then try and map it back to the real entity. So, um, so it's kind of interesting though, because this one really, <clears throat> it seems very similar to the missing function level access control, right? I mean, it actually, it actually walks the, it's like a border between that and just shy of a SQL injection, right? Cause, Absolutely. Cause you're not really doing, when I think SQL injection or just injection in general, that that's more malicious, but right. this one, this one, you're actually just, uh, you're just changing the value of a parameter and that parameter then isn't being uh, checked to see if that's something that you have access to, but yet letting you get back to it. So it's kind of weird that it, it, it it's not merged in with the well, again, uh, access it's, level. It's the name of it. So what they're saying is insecure direct object references. And just to be clear um, from all the reading and listening I did on, on this particular topic, they said in most cases, it's not necessary to do the insecure direct object reference, meaning that you don't need to necessarily create something to obfuscate the real ID. If you're a bank, absolutely. You, you don't want to be showing the account numbers and the URLs or in any hidden fields or anything like that. So in those cases, they said, if you are a bank, then yes, behind the scenes, you should probably be creating like a dictionary that says, okay, account number one, two, three, four, five is going to now be this GUID in the browser. 
right? So that nobody can reverse engineer that stuff because it's a throwaway. It's a one-time key, right? Um, so I think that's why this one is specifically set aside for that because in cases where you do need that, this can be extremely important. But if you're just a regular website that's, you know, you don't have anything crucial to hide from anybody. You're not, you're not exposing mm -hmm. personal information or anything like that. Do you need to go through all the trouble? Because this is actually a decent amount of programming, right? I mean, if you're going, if you're going to be rolling your own session tables behind the scenes to map to something that's kind of fake on the site. Well, but I think the point though, is that like, uh, if you're going to have parameters say in the URL that, that are exposed, um, Hmm. Only good for that session, though. Yeah, they should only be for that user. Don't, don't, don't. Yeah, because because that's that's the whole point is not allowing the user to just be able to change that value to get to to Joe's account data, right? right? Yeah, you like change the order number and the you know the URL, and now you're seeing someone else's confirmation. You right. want to verify that, that order is associated with the logged in user, right? So you can either handle it through authorization, which is what they say for most people is probably fine. But or if the you, session indirection. Yeah. But if you are a bank or you are somebody handling, like, I don't know, like yeah, social security numbers and stuff, then you probably should start looking into that um, indirect object references. All right. So we're going to make our way into the top three. Woo. Does anyone want to guess what number three is? <laughs> um, well, I could cheat. <laughs> yeah. Do we want to like wait for a listener to call in? All right. Yeah, I'm waiting. Still waiting. Yeah. All right, number three is cross-site scripting, the infamous XSS. I've never heard of that one. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, this one's uh, really easy to kind of accidentally slip in um, to a site and not realize. And, and uh, what's really bad about this is it's really easy for automated tools to, to find these. And uh, the, the consequences are dire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So uh, I've actually seen a demo where um, someone was able to find a small cross-site scripting um, uh, vulnerability, and they use it to inject a JavaScript file, which then pulled a remote server for instructions on what to do with that person's session. And so they were able to, you know, wreak all sorts of havoc and um, add stuff to car and, you know, pop up, redirect the person to their own URL. I mean, just everything. The cat was out of the bag. Yeah, what's interesting to me is is when you hear the term cross-site scripting, you automatically think external, right? Because that's right. what it sounds like. But when you read the documents that the OWASP has prepared, um, that's not always necessarily the case. It's just it's putting stuff on your page that does malicious things, right? Yeah, and uh, it's the, you know the common way to think about it is usually form fields and like URL fields. But uh, there's also a variant called um, stored cross-site scripting attacks where, you know, maybe I put my name in uh, some other website as alert, something or other in JavaScript. And then later when someone in the admin piece is going through and looking at customer records, all of a sudden uh, my name gets, you know, executed as JavaScript, uh, which is no bueno. So, I mean, just to be clear, like what we're talking about here is like if you have something, you have a form field, you allow the user to enter some data, and then that data is going to be displayed Mm -hmm. uh, you know, later in, in a page. So I think it's XSS is specific to like X ex code executing. Um, so like you, uh, you put some JavaScript in the field. It doesn't actually have to be JavaScript. Yeah. You could, uh, you know, inject some Ruby into a Ruby app or something as well. And that, that code actually gets executed, um, later. So the big, the big example here was the MySpace hack that happened. And that's what it yeah. was. It was, it, you know, the guy had like this gigantic, uh, you know, JavaScript that he was able to put into a form field, and it later it was actually a, a worm that propagated throughout the MySpace community that, you know, all of a sudden he was more popular than Tom. <laughs> that, yeah, that is right. The good news is this is an easy thing to fix. Uh, all you have to do is properly encode the data that you show on the website, and you should do this not for just URL and form fields, as we said, but also. Uh, pretty much for everything. So, you know, if you if someone can get something into a database and when you display that data for the database, you need to be um, probably encoding it for uh, HTTP or, or sorry, HTML or whatever format you're showing. Yeah, that's a great point, though, too, because there's different encodings for JavaScript, yep. for uh, HTTP, for XML. 
um, CSS, all of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So you have to be really specific about where you're gonna, how you're gonna uh, put that into the code. And I think one thing to note here, seeing as how we do talk about .NET a lot, that was interesting, is that out of the box, MVC is way more secure than web forms out of the box. And the reason is because web forms doesn't do everything consistently. It'll encode some attributes of a control, but not others. So the tooltip might not be encoded while the other stuff is encoded. So there's a... I think think an example that uh, that was discussed, that Troy discussed in one of his presentations was label versus button. Is that what it was? Yeah, I think think it was the... You know, if you if you took the value from a form field and and just stuck it in, um, I think button was encoded, but label was not. If I yeah. recall correctly, it's the same piece of data. So so yeah. and, and that's in web forms, and so you have to be a little bit more diligent if you were using web forms in trying to ensure that you are encoding all the data properly. Whereas in MVC, pretty much they said out of the box, like everything encodes everything. So you're you're already a bit further in the safety of of that. So according to, to OWASP, though, cross-site scripting is the most prevalent web application security flaw. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's number three on the list here, but it's the most prevalent yep. security flaw. It, and it makes perfect sense. I mean, it takes a lot of work to, to lock these things down, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, another thing that, that um, has been mentioned that I find interesting is it's not that you just have to worry about about things coming into your page. It might be things from your database that you're displaying on your page. Well, they that's got the in stored there. example that Joe gave, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And speaking of that, um, we mentioned sanitizing output, but you also want to sanitize that on the way in so you can prevent those stored attacks on other people who may not have sanitized their output. Yep. Yeah. And I also wanted to mention that a lot of people will sometimes they'll, they'll try to do some sort of blacklisting to try and prevent this thing. They'll look for script tags or they'll look for single quotes in the URL. But uh, you can get away with all sorts of stuff by like URL encoding the values or, or um, all sorts of different tricks that end up kind of putting that information back together uh, in a very bad way. So really, uh, you know, HTML encoding that stuff is the way to go for yeah. web apps. And uh, another thing, speaking of that, with the URL encoding and all that, uh, one of the things that Troy did bring up in his presentation that I thought was awesome uh, is the way a lot of uh, hackers are getting away with stuff like this is they use URL shorteners so that you can't actually Ooh. see what's in it. So so if you're on Twitter and you see this link from uh, Tiny URL or from uh, Twit or what is it now? I can't even remember. Bitly. So, yeah, yeah, Bitly and then uh, Twit.co or whatever it is, um, you're not actually going to see what you're about to go to. So when you click it, you could get something in the URL that's bad. And so it's pretty interesting. And it could be taking you to a perfectly legit site, but that site has vulnerabilities that are then exposed through the URL itself. So it's there are a lot of ways that this can be hijacked and and... Uh, that's why it's probably number three on the list here. Yep. Yeah. So moving on to number two, broken authentication and session management. Yeah. So that's just what it says. (laughs) Right. Yeah. The example that OWASP gave was, you know, having the session ID in the URL Mm -hmm. and then I, let's say, let's say I buy some concert tickets. Uh, there's a, uh, a TM company that sells some tickets that we all know and love because <laughs> their prices are so awesome. Oh yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, and I'm like, Hey Joe, I got the tickets and I want to send you a link showing you, you know, the confirmation or something, but I'm not meaning for you to be like actually get in my account, but Oh, accidentally, maybe I just gave you, uh, you know, if the session was in the URL, then maybe you could go in and then continue on as me in order whatever you wanted to, right? And that yeah, the server can't distinguish between us. So right, I am you right. as far as they're concerned. Exactly. Yeah. And the interesting thing is, is that would be fairly harmless if you sent it to Joe. The problem is mm. now today with social media, more than likely you're going to tweet that out. Be like, check out the tickets I just bought. Yeah. And, for, and me and just, me. And well, I mean, not that this one was bad, but I mean, you bring up that example and it was just uh, last night that I saw a tweet from Tony Hawk who had posted up the um, Mini Cooper had the their configurator 
where you could save, you build your car and configure it and save it. And he had tweeted, Hey, here's the new mini I'm getting. So yeah, I mean, if it, yeah. Could you imagine didn't have his credit cards? Yeah. <laughs> Someone's getting a couple minis. You know, you, you, that's, that's the kind of example where you're like, Oh yeah, let me get one too. Yeah. <laughs> let me go ahead and Thanks, change Tony. the address in this account real quick. Yeah. Hey, hey, wasn't there a uh, fairly popular company who also had a problem with this particular issue? Yeah, the big the big one here was uh, Apple. When uh, I think it was when they released Mountain Lion, it was the first version of iMessages that came out for OS ten. I believe that was in Mountain Lion, and uh, the hack was that uh, as you were configuring iMessage if you were you know people on the same network with you could hijack your uh your uh Apple ID account and gain access into everything that's iTunes for you uh or you know whatever you're using that account for so yeah, and also uh, another example is sometimes with uh, timeouts um that are set too long and it, like a, someone's at a public computer they just close the window and you've got that session uh, ID and a cookie or something. The next person that comes along uh, pops open, uh, you know, whatever website, Facebook, and now they're logged in as you. Yeah, and uh, speaking of the public computer route, uh, one of the things I said, too, is as a developer, we need to be conscious of that stuff and try to leverage cookies. And the main reason behind that is, is if, you were pa- if you're passing that session ID through your URL, that's all fine and dandy. But let's say that you are on a public computer. The next person who comes up can open the history, and assuming that that session wasn't squashed properly, they can just look at the URL history that was there, click on it, and then they're in your your account. So, um, if possible, try to utilize cookie management um, for handling your session going back and forth between the server. If somebody has cookies disabled, okay, well then maybe they just don't need to be on your site. You know, I don't, I don't know the answer. It's, it's up to you what you want to do with that. But, you know, something to be aware of. Generally speaking, exposing things in the URL is never a great idea, right? Yep. And well, another attack I really like here is like, uh, let's say, um, you know, you've got someone. Uh, Michael comes over to my house and uh, wants to use my computer to check his bank <laughs> bank statement. I'm like, uh, sure, what's your bank? And I, and I type in the, the bank for him, go to bankofamerica.com. Then I you know, look at the cookies, write down the session ID, then hand him the computer. Here, here you go, log in. And then he logs in. And then I, if uh, Bank of America hasn't changed that session ID once he's logged in, then I can run over to another computer, um, set my cookie to that value, and now we're both muggle outlaw. That's evil. Yep. I didn't know there was two of me. Yeah, not that I would do that to you. <laughs> All right. So, so, do we do a drum roll for uh, number one? Can anyone guess? Yeah. What haven't we mentioned? I don't know. We've gone over so much. What's a big one that. Hmm. And if you haven't heard of this as a developer, <laughs> then uh, you you probably really need to listen right now. Injection. Um, SQL injection? Yeah. Uh, Injection. <laughs> and just injection. Yes, injection. Because so SQL dirty. injection is probably the most popular, right? Because uh, isn't an interview 101, you know, how do, how do you protect your queries? Right? Yep. So um, that's probably the most prevalent one uh, out there. And, you know, how do you protect your database? But yeah. it's important to note, though, we're, we're not talking about SQL, just SQL injection. Right. LDAP, XPath, there's, there's it's not just... SQL. It's any kind of querying. If you're querying something, regardless, whatever service it is, you need to make sure that that thing is locked down to only allow proper things, authorized queries, uh, validated inputs, whatever it is. Um, and one thing I think is funny too is actually log injection. So if you know what someone's like logging, uh, you know, framework, whatever, whatever those lines uh, look like, and you're able to insert like new lines. Uh, you could actually start inserting logs for them to make it look like things uh, that didn't happen did happen. Uh, it's kind of interesting. Oh, interesting. Hmm. So if you're actually taking over a system or something. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what are some of the ways that you can actually protect your database? Whitelisting. No, that's not true. Uh, so databases, uh, you know, you've got it primarized queries. You've got 
store procedures that require the inputs to be uh, matched. Uh, what else? ORMs. Oh. ORMs. ORMs. Good ORMs. They will automatically do the parameterizing for you. But uh, just to be clear, stored procs don't necessarily save you from SQL injection. And there are several ways that it can be done. But in the olden days, if you had a query that had to be somewhat dynamic in the order buys or whatever it was trying to output, the way that, that uh, people would typically do that is they would set a, a SQL query to a string value and then they would exec that string. That, uh. that SQL query. So if in SQL Server, for instance, if you just do an exec and you're passing in values and it's just basically plugging it into the string, you get no protection. If there was an injection, or if somebody put something malicious in there, they're still going to have access to it. So if you are doing something like a dynamic query in a stored proc, you need to use something like SP Execute SQL and actually use the parameterized version of the exec at the bottom. So there are still ways. It's not foolproof. Just because it's in a stored proc doesn't mean that it's safe. It just generally means that it usually is. Um, well, it just a, yeah. It, oh, so as a good practice, though, so there's some good practices that you can have there too, right? And for my personal preference, though, I like the use of stored procedures just to kind of break away the database layer from my application layer. You know, have have the, have that logic in in its own container. So to speak, yep. Um, and encoding is big here too for uh, stuff like XML or other types of injection. Um, you want to make sure that you're properly encoding for that format. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is also Joe mentioned and kind of retracted a second ago, but absolutely true. Whitelisting. If if there are only certain values that you know should go into something, and a whitelist doesn't mean it has to be a value; it can be a type. If you know that a parameter has to be of type. Uh, integer, then why are you going to let a string value in? So, you know, there, there are ways that you can actually protect before it ever even gets to your query level. Yeah, that's kind of a recurring theme with this top 10 is uh, validation and encoding. So the big one here, the big example here, uh, we've kind of already hinted on, would be the Sony attack. Um, they got hammered. I, I, what was it like for at least a solid year? It seemed like every month there was a new uh, attack from them. Yeah, it was a bad year for them. them. Yeah, and the PlayStation 4 comes out tonight. Mm. Mm. And also, I think anytime we talk about uh, SQL injection, we've got to mention um, Dear Bobby Table's uh, famous uh, XKCD comic that shook the world. Um, this hypothetical parent uh, has named her child. Uh, Bobby in last name is uh, single quote semicolon drop tables. <laughs> I don't mind the middle name, but uh, yeah. So the school uh, calls this parent up and is uh, a little upset with what just happened to their database. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, chances are somebody's not going to do a drop table on you unless they're just really mad at you. Usually, what they're going to be doing is trying to mine the data out of your database, and. Uh, you know, that's the dangerous part. Yeah, you're lucky if it's just a drop. Yeah, if it's just a drop, then, you know, hopefully you have a backup somewhere. Uh, worst case scenario, they're going to walk off with your data and expose, you know, tons of usernames, personal information, much like Sony. So, so let's see some predictions here. Like, we're, we're, we're coming up on 2014. Who, who wants, what do we want to do? Uh, top one, top two? What do you think going into 2014? So uh, I've got a prediction here. This year, 2013, Edward Snowden made a name for himself by... Uh, Who's that guy? Yeah, so I'm releasing some documents. What's uh, his Twitter handle? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, why would I know that? <laughs> but uh, he made a name for himself by releasing some documents from the NSA showing that uh, there's, a, there's a whole lot more spying going on um, than... Well, I guess the tinfoil hats knew all along, but um, there's a whole lot of spying going on. And so I expect that a lot more people are going to be looking at encryption for their companies and organizations. And I, I expect a lot of them are going to do it wrong. So I'm guessing the number one, or at least moving into top three, is uh, security misconfiguration. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, mine is actually going to be... I think the cross-site scripting has become more of a big problem because of smartphones. That's what 
I think that that people on their phones feel safe for some reason. And I don't think they take the same precautions they do with Windows because Microsoft has always been bad, whatever. So I have a feeling there's going to be exploits that somehow allow lower level access to systems on phones that are really going to cause some problems. Because, I mean, people keep their lives on their phones. And uh, that's where I think attacks are going to go. I actually thought Joe might was maybe going to take mine as he was going down that route because I was thinking that sensitive data exposure would move oh. for a similar reason. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't Dower know. Up. Uh, well, it's closer to one. So up, I guess. Yeah. Um, or, you know, unless you're looking at it numerically, I guess it would be maybe down. Whatever. You're talking about the highest priority. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I was thinking that sensitive data exposure might might move in position. Uh, you know, like I said, based on similar reasons that you gave. Yeah, <laughs> when you no, were saying it, I was like, "Be passing Dang, this stuff around." Mine. <laughs> yeah. We should discuss these. <laughs> maybe we should be passing this company information around in plain tech. Yeah, interesting. Well, I mean, Google's been making strides. I mean, they have been vocally quite quite vocally pissed off about uh you know finding out just how you know their own government has been you know kind of taking advantage of of their offering so they they've been uh doing a lot to uh encrypt everything end to end and and you know SSL everywhere um so yeah, yeah. And uh, just in case you are have been living on a rock and you're not familiar with some of the stuff we've been talking to, uh, I highly recommend checking out a podcast called Security Now, where they they talk a lot about the stuff that's going on, or actually quite uh, made quite a name for themselves by predicting um, a lot of things that were later revealed about um, Prism and and Snowden and the NSA and, and a lot of the other stuff. Yeah, great stuff in that podcast. Yeah, Steve Steve Gibson is like my hero. Yeah. That kind of takes us into our next section. We want to talk about some application security tools and resources like Security Now. Also, there's some pretty cool tools we discovered. Uh, I can't say this. It was Havage. Havage. It was a security injection test tool. So it's got two versions, a paid and a free version. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it looked pretty cool. I I've, I don't know. I, I haven't done any SQL injection uh, you know. I, testing on my own but when i found out about this tool i was like well that's actually kind of neat i kind of want to play with it yeah it, i mean if nothing else use it against your own site right not in production yeah not in production <laughs> right yeah no but i mean that's the whole thing like a lot of these tools can be used for harm uh but they can also be used to help you solidify your own site well so, yeah so to that point though you got to believe that uh you know it's out there so any 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 hacker. hacker that wanted to, uh, they're they're going to be using it too. Yep, yep. And if you are going to be uh, kind of hacking away on your own dev site, um, you might want to be careful with what fields you, uh, you delete or you know mess with because someone else might be working on them at the time as well. <laughs> be a little confused about their data being uh, manipulated. Sorry, I, Michael. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Some other tools. Um, Backtrack Linux is a distribution. Um, it's pretty much made specifically for um, like uh, security testing and looking for um, exploits, metasploits. Another tool for uh, it's a really great. It's um, it really bundles up these exploits and makes them really easy to exploit. So you can kind of um, double click; it'll run through a bunch of stuff and then give you a shell access, something like that. So you don't even know what's going on underneath. You just kind of right clicked on, or sorry, I typed in the computer name, and uh, there you go. Um, burp is kind of a cool tool uh, burp suite it's a java application that's good for um, uh, really all sorts of stuff but it can act as a man in the middle it can repeat requests it can act as a fuzzer to try and kind of fill in data and look for exploits on your site and also uh, something like fiddler is a, a great lightweight tool for just kind of seeing the communication that goes back and forth between um, your client and your uh, website yeah yeah, it's not only interesting for that, it's also because uh, you got to believe that, that if somebody wanted to attack your site, they're going to use a tool like that to see what's being sent back and forth, too. So you might as well be on the uh, <laughs> on the edge of that, too, using it to see 
what you're actually sending back and forth to make sure you're not sending it back something you didn't mean to. Yeah, that's why I have all these tools, right? Yeah, that's the cross-site request forgery. Fiddler makes it stupid easy to do that kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but again, it's used, it's supposed to be for development purposes. So, yeah. you know. And there's a whole book written specifically about Metasploit. There's actually a pretty cool book uh, I just remember now called, um, uh, I think it's called Gray Hat uh, Hacking with Python. Um, it's, it's pretty cool. It actually will have you go through and build things like debuggers and fuzzers, and it gives you a nice overview or like um, a, a nice kind of understanding of what these tools are and what they're used for. Hmm. And speaking of books, um, there's actually a lot of really good um, you know, books and specifically audio books, because um, I know you guys are probably audio fans if you're listening to this show. But um, Audible has a lot of really good books from uh, Bruce Schneier, um, also uh, Kevin Mitnick, who's famous for writing uh, The Art of Deception, uh, another book called America the Vulnerable. And uh, you can listen to these books, and uh, pretty cool. Awesome. All right, so with that, let's get into the tip of the week, or tips of the week. Yep, and um, I wanted to mention a website called Cloudcracker which is um, a suite of tools specifically for uh, cracking secrets and passwords. And so you can go to this website, um, give me your credit card number, uh, and upload, yeah, <laughs> upload some information, and then they'll give you, like, you know, I, I don't know the prices offhand, but it'll be like, uh, they'll crack a WPA2 password for 5 bucks, or they'll crack a, a RSA password for 150 or whatever. And they'll even show you like average times and uh, you just kind of get an email saying, oh, uh, here's your password. You're welcome. Wow. All right. So with that, I had uh, had two that I wanted to, they're kind of, they're both kind of small. Um, but I, I thought they would both be a value. These are within Visual Studio. So uh, everybody knows about breakpoints, right? When you're debugging something, I think Alan had a couple episodes back, he had mentioned a, a tip about using named breakpoints. So, um, you know, one thing you can do while you're debugging your code is, uh, you know, you, you've, you've already at gotten at your breakpoint or past your breakpoint and you're kind of just stepping a few lines through it. And later on, there might be like, you know, a for loop that you want to skip and you can go to a line past that and control F10 and it'll just automatically execute all the way to where your cursor is currently at. But another cool thing that you can do with that is let's say that you're not in a debug session, right? And you want to test something and you don't really care to set a breakpoint, but you're like, you know what? I just want to run the application to where my cursor is right now. Boom, control F10 and it'll start a debug session. And while you haven't added a breakpoint, it'll run it to where your cursor is and then stop for you right there. Oh, nice. So it's kind of like an ad hoc, uh, breakpoint that can happen for you. And so that's the first one that, uh, I wanted to mention. But then the second one is that if you do actually want to set a breakpoint, one thing that's very convenient is if after you've set your breakpoint, you can right click on it and add a condition to it to say, uh, you know, only stop when this that when this statement is true, and then that way, uh, you know, if you're running through a list of like ten thousand names or something like that, you know, whatever it might be, you're only going to get to it in those circumstances that you actually want to stop and see what's happening. Yeah, I thought I mentioned too. I've noticed a lot of people don't uh, realize this is you can actually drag that uh, little yellow debugging arrow up in a lot of a lot of cases. So some situations where it doesn't work, but uh, if you ever um, kind of F10 past the thing you wanted to see, you're like, oh no, you can actually just click on that arrow and drag it up a few lines and replay it. I did not know that. Yeah, it's it's a little wonky sometimes, you know, because values might already be set, whatever. But uh, sometimes it's pretty useful. Huh. All right. Well, uh, I guess my particular uh, tip of the week is something that just kind of came up tonight. Uh, and please don't use this on our site. You know, if, you, if you're going to use it, use it. <laughs> but it's a it's a it's a website called Mailinator.com. And like, if you're ever looking up information or you just want access to that one thing on the site, and you don't want to get spammed with emails and all kinds of stuff, um, you don't want to put in your user or you don't want to put in your own email because you're just like God. I, I really don't want to sign up for more spam. You can go to mailinator.com 
And you can literally create any kind of mailbox you want because it's public. Everybody in the world will be able to see it. It doesn't matter. But what it allows you to do is put in an email address. We'll call it alan at mailinator.com. You plug that into the site that you're you're trying to get some information from. You can actually go over to Mailinator, retrieve the email, which, by the way, will be blown away in 30 minutes, an hour, something like that. But then you'll be able to go click the link, you know, confirm that you have a real email address and then go in and, you know, get the information you want. So, again, I, I, I'm doing this out of the kindness of my heart to save you from a ton of spam. We won't spam you. Please, if you're going to sign up for our newsletter, just go ahead and do it. I, I think this might be only for the parents out there, but is it just me or does this sound like one of the innators made by Dr. Heinz Doofenshmirtz? <laughs> <laughs> for all the uh, Phineas and Ferb fans out there. Man. Nice. But I can tell you right now, like this, this tool is invaluable if you need it. So... Um, again, you should not need it for coding blocks because we will send you nothing but quality, good content, right? I'm just expecting like Perry, the platypus to come busting in (laughs) about this, uh, this innator. Oh, um, uh, before we, uh, close up, um, I do want to say, uh, recently we've put some posts up, uh, about like some JavaScript frameworks and things like that. If there's anything that you guys would specifically want to know about, or want us to spend some time talking about, please, you know, let us know, you know, contact us. Are you interested in, I don't know, whatever. Just, just let us know. So, Angular. Yes. Angular. Please know. <laughs> I mean, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I know. I don't hate Angular. <laughs> All right. So, uh, so with that, we'll be putting up the links in the show notes and, uh, everything up on the site yes and uh go ahead and subscribe to us on itunes stitcher and whatever your favorite podcasting app is and be sure to leave us some reviews on itunes and stitcher that'll help us jump up in the ranks and you know give us some motivation to come to you a little bit more often even and uh visit us on codingblocks.net where you can find our show notes examples discussion and more and send your feedbacks questions rants comments and everything else to comments at codingblocks.net.